Well, this morning we have the privilege of getting back into 1 Peter, and so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at one of the most important texts in this entire letter this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, and follow along with me as I read our text. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to study your word this morning, and we are, we come to you with great anticipation, knowing that we have the same spirit dwelling in us, who inspired Peter to write these words originally, and now we ask you, Holy Spirit, to illuminate us to understand what these words mean and how they apply to our lives, and help us to live them out in a way that would honor Christ and would cause others to glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the most memorable and inspiring stories in the Old Testament is when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the furnace by Nebuchadnezzar because they refused to bow down to an idolatrous statue that he had made of himself. Turn back with me to Daniel chapter 3 for a moment. I thought this would be a good place to start today's message, Daniel chapter 3, that familiar account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and uh, I'm assuming you are aware of this story, Uh, the reigning king of the day, the world's leading empire, Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, an egomaniac, decided to build a statue of himself and require that everyone in the world bow down to him and worship him. Well, when the music played and everyone bowed, there was three guys left standing. And when he got word of that, he was livid. And we'll pick up the story in Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? 
Now, if you are ready, at the moment you will hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. I mean, you have got to love these guys. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loose and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Or in the words of VeggieTales, he was real shiny. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the high kings, high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of those of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. I mean, you can't even grill hot dogs in your backyard without coming in smelling like fire. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything of offensive, offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to rubbish heap Inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way, then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. I read that story because I think it perfectly and practically illustrates what Peter has been driving at in this letter that he wrote to Christians who were scattered throughout Asia Minor who were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you remember, really the heart of this book is found in 1 Peter chapter 
2, verses 11 and 12, where it says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. That's exactly what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. They were aliens and strangers in Babylon. They had been ripped out of their homeland in Israel and taken off into exile. And so they were aliens and strangers. And he says, to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, and might even end up throwing you into a fiery furnace, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Isn't that exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did? And I think because of that fiery furnace experience along with his experience when he went insane and became a cow or like, acted like a cow grazing on the, in the pasture in front of his kingdom uh, after he repented, acknowledging that he wasn't the greatest power in the universe, but God was. And again, he glorified God. I won't be surprised if we get to meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. But it was because of the witness, the testimony, the behavior of men like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that won him to Christ or won him to the one true God. Peter, here in this letter, wanted to prepare his readers for suffering by providing them an eternal perspective on suffering, which would give them help and and hope so they could stand firm when their commitment to Christ resulted in being maligned or mistreated or possibly even martyred. But if you remember, as we have been learning here, he, he didn't want them just to hunker down and to huddle up and to hide out until they got to heaven. Instead, he presented a strategy for how we as aliens and strangers, as pilgrims, can evangelize the lost and win over a watching world that's growing increasingly hostile to the gospel by behaving in a way that convicts unbelievers and results in their salvation. Probably the most memorable example that he gives of what this might look like is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. He says, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And so the people who are hardest to win over to Christ are those who are most opposed to Christ and often are the ones who treat his followers most harshly and unreasonably and unjustly. And that's why one of the themes, uh, dominant themes of this letter is how Christians can stand firm in the face of unjust suffering. And the words suffer or suffering are repeated more in this letter than any other words. Um, we find it in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, uh, and maybe just the climax in chapter 5, we'll read verse 9, resist Satan firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So, Peter has been flirting with this subject of suffering uh, throughout 
this letter, every chapter contains something about suffering, and he finally gets to this section in chapter 4 where he gives the most concentrated and extended instruction on suffering for the cause of Christ. It's all, it kind of seems like all the roads lead to these verses. And what I want us to see this morning is how Paul gave five instructions, five instructions that we need to follow in order to stand firm against the growing opposition toward Christians and the church in our day. Five instructions that we need to follow in order to stand firm against the growing opposition towards Christians and towards the church of Jesus Christ in our day. And we're going to see, number one, we need to expect suffering. Number two, we need to exult in suffering. Number three, we need to evaluate our suffering. Number four, we need to embrace suffering. And lastly, we need to entrust our suffering to God. So let's look, first of all, at the first instruction, and that is that we must expect suffering. Verse 12, he begins with the simple term, beloved. This is the second time Peter addressed his readers in this letter with this endearing term, chapter 2, verse 11, beloved, I urge you as alien strangers. He will also use this same term four times in his second letter, which I mentioned that because we're almost there. And I told you originally when we started First Peter, I wanted to do First and Second Peter together. Uh, we're going to hit chapter 5, Lord willing, next week, and that'll be quick, and uh, we'll be in Second Peter before you know it. So um, he, Peter was simply expressing here how much he loved and cared for these suffering believers. And so like a good pastor that he was, uh, we're going to see that in, in chapter 5, verse 1, he exuded tenderness and compassion and concern. But more importantly, he was reassuring his re- readers of how much God loved them and cared for them. And, and, and that's, I think, what that beloved means. Not just beloved by me, but beloved by God. And see, whenever we experience any kind of suffering, I think it's easy for us to question or doubt God's love for us. We're like, hey, God, where are you? Hey, God, do you even know what's going on? Hey, God, do you even care? How, how can you say you love me and allow this to happen? Well, Peter wanted to remind his readers and us this morning that no matter what we're going through, we are loved by God. No one loves us more than God loves us. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. And if you remember from the introduction to this letter, Peter likely wrote this shortly before or shortly after the burning of Rome, which the emperor of the day, Nero, blamed the Christians for, and he used it as an excuse to unleash his fury against them. And if you remember, uh, he would dip Christians in pitch and light them on fire and skewer them on a stake and use them to light up his garden parties, kind of like a human tiki torch. Or he would sew, have Christians sewn into animal skins and put them in the Colosseum and release wild animals who would come and just tear them apart. So Peter was observing this. He saw this happening, and he knew it was only a matter of time before this wave of persecution swept across Asia Minor, and he wanted to equip these Christians um, so their faith would not get washed away, like his almost had 
when he got caught off guard by Jesus telling his disciples that he would have to suffer and die. Remember that in Matthew 16, verse 21, where Jesus began to tell his disciples, hey, guys, just so you know, I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be, I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be crucified. And, 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 and Peter was like, whoa, 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 time out. What are you talking about? You're the Messiah. You're the king of the Jews. You're going to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to wipe out the Romans, and you're going to set up your throne, and you're going to reign forever and ever. And so Jesus' words shocked Peter. They confused Peter. He didn't get it. And when it actually went down and Jesus got arrested, Peter was scared. He was so disoriented to the point that he denied that he even knew Christ. But now he knew better. All these years later, and as a result of his own experience, he knew that we shouldn't be surprised or shocked or confused or scared or disoriented whenever we suffer any kind of ill treatment or persecution for the cause of Christ. In fact, it's a normal, natural experience of every true Christian. What would be strange or abnormal is if we didn't face any kind of hostility or adversity for being a Christian. I mean, Jesus himself and his apostles taught that Christians should expect to be hated and persecuted. Remember Jesus' words in John 15, verse 18. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But in all these things, they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. He went on in the next chapter, chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, that we should not be alarmed by our opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Apostle John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. So he refers all the way back to Cain and Abel, which is the very beginning, Right? And so ever since the very beginning, God's people have suffered at the hands of unbelievers on account of their righteous lives. And it shouldn't come as any surprise either because we're living in enemy territory that's controlled by Satan and he has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to the truth, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. So whenever we experience any sort of suffering, any kind of adversity, any sort of hostility in our family or at work or at school, 
uh, or maybe in our neighborhood because of our commitment to Christ, we should never say or think to ourselves, I can't believe this is happening to me. Or this shouldn't be happening to me. Listen, suffering is what you signed up for when you became a Christian. It's part of the cost of Christianity. And furthermore, it's part of God's purpose for our lives as Christians. And he uses it to test the genuineness of our faith in Christ. Turn back to chapter 1. You will remember this opening instruction that Peter gave us regarding trials and suffering. This is chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And again, here in chapter 4, verse 12, he talks about this fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your testing. Peter may have been drawing from the prophet Malachi who said in Malachi chapter 3 verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, that he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Well, what's the point? Suffering has a refining and purifying effect in our lives, and ultimately it proves whether or not we're truly saved. Remember the parable of the soils? The, 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 the seed that was sown among the rocky soil. And Jesus gave an explanation of what, what happened there with that rocky soil. Matthew chapter 13, verse 20, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. In other words, they were never truly saved to begin with. So God uses the difficulties, the hostilities that we face from those who reject Christ to verify our faith, but also to purify our faith and to deepen and strengthen our walk with Christ. Again, chapter 5, verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That that all sounds really good, doesn't it? Well, that's only going to happen, right, through suffering. So suffering for Christ results in a deeper walk with Christ, but it also results in a richer reward in heaven, and for that we should rejoice. And that brings us to our second instruction here, not only are we to expect suffering, we are to exult in suffering. We are to exult in suffering. Look at verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. That word share there, but to the degree that you share the substance of Christ, that word is a derivative of the word koinonia, which you know what that word means, doesn't it? What does it mean? Fellowship or, or sharing in common. 
And so when we share in something, share something in common with someone, it knits our hearts together in a unique way, creates a level of intimacy that we don't share with others, especially when that something that we share in common is hard, like cancer, or a wayward child, or you fill in the blank, a painful divorce. There are people in our church who have connected on that level. And guess what? There's an intimacy there, unlike what they share with the rest of us because of this fellowship, this sharing in common of something. And so it is when we experience the same kind of suffering that Jesus experienced, whether that's being hated like he was hated or rejected like he was rejected or mocked like he was mocked or, or, or betrayed like he was betrayed or falsely accused like he was falsely accused or killed like he was killed. We, our hearts are knitted together with him. Paul longed to share this kind of fellowship with Christ, to suffer for Christ in the same way that Christ had suffered. Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Paul said, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his, his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And then maybe more memorably, Philippians chapter 3 Verse 8, I count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for I am whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of the faith. Here it is, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. See, Paul knew that if we wanted to be raised with Christ and rewarded by Christ when we die or when he returns, we must follow the same path that Christ did. And Christ's path to glory required that he suffer, and so must we. Not in a redemptive way, like he did, as if his suffering on the cross was not enough to atone for our sins. There's nothing more that we can do but we can identify with Christ in his sufferings and should rejoice at the privilege of suffering any pain or shame for his name. Notice two times in this verse, Peter said, rejoice. Reminds me of the writer of Hebrews, what he said about Jesus, Hebrews 12, 12, verse 2, he said, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before Christ, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I think Peter's point here is that we should be overjoyed knowing that we are sharing in Christ's sufferings on earth, which means we will also share in his glory in heaven. And so our future hope is what enables us to have present joy. These aren't the only reasons why we should rejoice. Peter goes on to say that when we suffer, we're blessed, and we're also ministered to by the Holy Spirit, who secures us and sustains us in the midst of suffering. Look at verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
Peter's already, already hinted to this in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Peter was very familiar with the words of Christ that he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Luke recorded it this way, and it may, it may have been a similar sermon or the same sermon at a different location. Some writer, uh, Bible scholars say Luke 6 is the sermon on the plain, not on the mount, but Nevertheless, this is what he said, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. You see, when we willingly endure persecution for Christ, it is proof that we're truly saved, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. He says, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In other words, it's evidence that the spirit of God is in you. But what's more, while we're being persecuted, the Holy Spirit rests on us like the Shekinah glory cloud rested on the tabernacle in the Old Testament, which signified the presence of God. And in trying times, it's not uncommon for us to think or feel like God has abandoned us. Where'd you go, God? But according to Peter, in these difficult seasons of pain and adversity, God is actually closer than ever. And his powerful presence is guarding us and guiding us. In other words, God is with us in our suffering through his spirit, and his spirit reassures us and refreshes us. Paul said it this way, Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be real to us. This explains... How throughout the history of the church, our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ have been able to and are able to joyfully endure horrific pain and torture and suffering. As I was getting ready to come this morning, an email popped up uh, from a ministry that follows the persecuted church around the world, and they talked about this pastor who was arrested, and they put him in a, in a, in a steel box and put them out in the sun to bake. We talk about torture. I mean, I feel tortured living in Houston in the summertime. And I'm not even in a box. I'm just outside, right, in the humidity. But to put me in a storage container, right, lock it down, and I got to live in there until I die. Some of you may be familiar with the name Richard Wormbrand. He was the founder of Voice of the Martyrs Ministry. 
He was a pastor in Romania back in the late 60s, early 70s. He was in prison for standing up against the communist regime, for refusing to stop preaching the gospel. He said there were times when he was placed in solitary confinement after having been beaten and, and scarred by the, by the brutal guards and that, that, that there was just times when he was so overcome with joy that he would stand up in that tiny space in his weakened state and dance around as if the angels were in there with him. Wormbrand understood this joy, this rejoicing, this blessedness of the spirit of, of, of glory and of God resting on you in the midst of your suffering. So we need to expect suffering. We need to exult in our suffering. But we also need to evaluate our suffering. We need to evaluate our suffering. Look at verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. So Peter added, added a caveat here by saying that, that none of us should suffer as a result of wrongdoing. He's already mentioned that uh, in chapter 2, verse 20, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. Um, chapter 3, verse 17, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And I think the idea here is just because this world is not our home, that we are aliens and strangers, doesn't mean we're not obligated to submit to its authorities or to obey its laws. In fact, Peter already made that very clear in chapter 2, verse 13, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. We're to honor the king. And so when we rebel against God-ordained authority and break the law, we will suffer as a criminal, not as a Christian. Now, obviously, we shouldn't kill anyone or steal from anyone or do evil things to anyone or meddle in anyone's business. By the way, what is that doing in that list? Is that odd to you? He talks about being a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, and then a meddler? Wouldn't you think that's like in a different category? It shouldn't have been listed in here. These are the biggies here. And you got meddling going on there? Well, it's interesting. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Timothy 5, had this term called a busybody. He talked about it quite a bit. Somebody that goes around and kind of sticks their nose in everybody else's business which, by the way, can destroy a church. And so what did Paul say? What was the remedy? 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands so that you will behave properly toward outsiders. Interesting. In other words, when we meddle in other people's business, especially unbelievers' business, get all judgy with them, that's a bad testimony, and it brings dishonor and reproach upon the name of Christ, and we should never bring shame on Christ or bring suffering on ourselves. And so we need to evaluate our suffering. We need to make sure that our suffering 
is truly for the cause of Christ and not merely, uh, we're not merely reaping the consequences of our own sinful, foolish, or perhaps overly zealous choices. I mean, if that's true, shame on us. But, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. In other words, there is no shame or disgrace in being ostracized from your family or being minimized by your friends or losing your job or your reputation or your home or being maligned or misrepresented or being hated, even killed, if it's because of your commitment to Christ. Because you're a Christian. Little fun fact here, that word Christian, this might surprise, come as a surprise to you, only used three times in the New Testament. You're like, what? Christian? You think that'd be everywhere. No, not really. This is it right here. And, and, and by the way, this is the only time it's used, if you will, in a positive light. Um, originally, uh, the word Christian was a derogatory name coined by the enemies of Christ for his followers. Uh, we see this in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. It says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Um, and again, that wasn't a compliment, by the way. It, it meant little Christ. You're a little Christ. It was more like that. And then later in Acts 26, verse 28, when Paul was witnessing to Agrippa and, and appealing to him to get saved, King Agrippa uh, said this in verse 28. He said, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. I mean, I know we live in Aggie country, or at least close enough that we, we get this, but um, I, I was at a, I, I spoke at a men's retreat recently, and it was from, for guys in a church in College Station, and I just mentioned the word longhorn, and I started hearing, they were, and I was like, whoa, what's going on here? I knew what was going on, because I had been to enough of the, you know, things at A&M to know that's what you do when you hear the word longhorn. It's a, it's a, it's a device, divisive uh, derision kind of term, longhorn, right? Um, that, that this word Christian was intended as an insult. A put down, a, a, it was again a term of derision. But over time, followers of Christ gladly adopted that as their preferred name, and it's what we proudly go by today, amen? What an honor, what a privilege to bear the name of Christ, to suffer for the sake of his name. And you, I'm sure, will remember that after Christ was arrested, Peter was ashamed to admit that he was a follower of Christ, but after Christ ascended back to heaven, Peter was no longer ashamed to be associated with Christ, and he stood up for him, and he suffered for him, and he and some of the other apostles in Acts 5.41, after having been beaten uh, for refusing to stop preaching Christ, they said this, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. So, we need to evaluate our suffering, make sure we're truly suffering for Christ and not for us. Number four, we need to embrace suffering. We need to embrace suffering. This is next level now. This is not just expect it. Don't just exult in it. 
But now you need to embrace it. What's going on here? Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That term, household of God, is the New Testament term for the church, Ephesians 2.19, 1 Timothy 3.15. We see that. We are currently living in the church age, which began at Pentecost and will last until the time of the rapture. And until Christ returns for his bride, he is purifying us, he is refining us to make us more like him through trials and tribulations that he sovereignly ordains for us. And so the suffering that we experience in life, particularly from those who hate Christ, it isn't God condemning us for our sin, but conforming us to the image of Christ by purging sin from our lives. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-two, 32, when he was talking about how we should examine our lives when we take communion. He says, when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And again, in the same neighborhood here, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, talks about how God disciplines us like a father disciplines his son. Verse 10, they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Big difference between being disciplined and being punished. Being chastened and being condemned. And so Peter's question here is if God is that committed to prune and chasten those who have obeyed the gospel and are striving to live righteously, how much will he punish and condemn those who have disobeyed the gospel and choose to live unrighteously? And he quotes the LXX here, which is the Greek translation of the the Old Testament, Proverbs 11.3 there in verse 18, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? And again, Peter wasn't saying that that it's difficult for us to earn our salvation by enduring all sorts of trials and tribulations and living a righteous life, kind of like a purgatory on earth, if you will. He was simply acknowledging that that it's difficult being a follower of Christ. And with all the dangers and temptations that beset a Christian, not to mention all the abuse and and hostility that someone who leads a righteous life has to endure in this world, it is only by the grace of God that they are able to persevere and are preserved for heaven. And Paul said this in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, and this was, by the way, after he had been through a number of cities and had gotten run out of town and actually stoned and left for dead, he got up and went back through those same towns to encourage those who had gotten saved through his witness. And this is what he said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Oh, really, Paul? (laughs) We saw you get stoned about three times in the last three weeks. I think Peter's point is this, that our present fiery trials are nothing compared to the eternal flaming fire that unbelievers will face when Christ returns. Paul talks about this very vividly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. 
He's talking about all the persecutions and afflictions that we as believers must endure. Verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Listen, it is far better to endure temporal suffering on earth as a believer than to endure eternal suffering in hell as an unbeliever. We who live difficult lives of suffering for Christ will experience the end of our suffering at some point, whereas unbelievers who live a comfortable life of sin for Satan will experience never-ending suffering. Lastly and quickly, we need to entrust our suffering to God. We need to entrust our suffering to God. Verse 19, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Peter has been mentioning a number of times already the importance of suffering for what's right, not for what's wrong. His point here, again, is when we live out God's will for our lives, we can trust God with our lives. And as the one who created our souls, and and by the way, this is the only time that God is referred to as creator in the New Testament, interesting. But as the one who created our souls, as the one who redeemed our souls, he is in the best position to protect and perfect our souls in the midst of our suffering. That word entrust There is a banking term that that means to deposit for safekeeping. Peter's already mentioned how Jesus exemplified this for us in chapter 2, verse 22. It says that Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept what? Entrusting himself to him who judges Righteously, Father, into your hands I, what? Commit my spirit. Luke 23, 46. Paul liked this word. 2 Timothy 1, 12. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Later on in 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 18, Paul said, the Lord stood with me. And strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Wonder what he might have been thinking there. Having been an expert of the Old Testament, having been raised a Pharisee, probably thinking about how God rescued Daniel the time he had to spend the night in in the lion's den, Daniel chapter 6. New Empire. Persia, new emperor, Darius, but just like his faithful comrades, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God used Daniel's righteous, uncompromising life 
to cause Darius to worship and glorify him. Another ancient king that I wouldn't be surprised if we don't meet in heaven someday. What's the point? As we continue doing what is right, especially those who are trying to do us wrong, we can be confident that God will never leave us or forsake us, but he will see us through to the very end. I close with the words of Isaiah. This is the passage that I often read when I visit someone in the hospital who is enduring some kind of suffering, about to go under the knife perhaps. And, and I love this passage. It's so applicable. Isaiah 43, verse 1, But now thus says the Lord your God, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. It was interesting how everyone that was involved in throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace were killed in their place. All the guys that had thrown Daniel into the lion's den were killed in his place. And Isaiah says, do not fear, for I am with you. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this very encouraging, inspiring text. I don't know where everyone's at this morning what they're experiencing, what they're enduring because of their commitment to Christ. Maybe things are kind of quiet right now, but they're going to heat up for sure at some point in the future. And so I pray that this text would burn itself in our hearts and our minds. We would remember this is where we need to turn uh, the next time we face some kind of suffering for the cause of Christ to find help and hope so that we can win others over, our persecutors over, through our excellent response to their affliction. Lord, use us to honor the name of Christ, we pray this week in Jesus' name. Amen.